Today, I'm talking with my friend and childhood neighbor, Rachel. Rachel is a staff attorney for Legal Aid of North Carolina and specializes in domestic violence legal matters. This is Womanhood. Welcome to Womanhood, a podcast created to empower and give voice to all women's experiences, which are typically stigmatized and silenced in society. I'm your host, Mimi Healy. I am so excited to air this first episode of Womanhood in April, as April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and nearly one in five women and 1 in 71 men have been raped in their lifetime by any perpetrator. I'm also happy to be bringing this episode during the time of COVID-19 as Rachel has some great information for someone who may be inside with an abuser. Thanks for listening. Rachel. Um, I'm a staff attorney for Legal Aid of North Carolina, which is a nonprofit statewide law firm that has offices in various counties, most counties of North Carolina. Um, So I actually cover, I live in Boone, I'm in the Boone office. We cover seven different counties because it's a little more rural up here. So the offices up here cover more turf. I work on covering about three counties. Um, with very different populations, Boone and Watauga being, you know, a little more college-oriented, and then you have more rural areas. Legal Aid of North Carolina provides free legal help to low-income North Carolinians in civil cases involving basic human needs like safety, shelter, income, and more. I am technically funded by VOCA, which is a state victim's uh, domestic violence grant, and the governor's crime commission. So I am kind of just a domestic violence attorney. It's like 90% of what I do. I do do like housing stuff, social security, food stamps. We have a lot of clients who face eviction who are also victims of domestic violence. Um, And so that's kind of what I do, but we do all sorts of civil litigation and civil cases. For domestic violence, there is actually no income cap. We usually cap it. You have to be of a certain income level, below a certain income level to qualify for our services. And you also usually have to be a citizen. But for domestic violence, we don't require that income level be met or that you be a citizen because obviously with domestic violence, um, financial control can be a huge component of that. So if a victim technically has assets but the abuser, um, their partner is not allowing them to have access to that, they can't get an attorney. And so we also don't differentiate based on citizenship. So we represent citizens and non-citizens. Up here, I speak Spanish, so I get stuck with a lot of the Spanish-speaking cases, (laughs) which I shouldn't say stuck with. They're very interesting cases. They're just a little more complex. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have a lot of Christmas tree farming up here. And so 
we find that we have a huge portion of Spanish-speaking clients that their partners um, are working on the Christmas tree farm, and so they are here either temporarily or on a work visa. So dealing with immigration and ICE and all those terrifying things that are kind of going on right now has been a huge issue um, for me. But overall, you know, Spanish-speaking, English-speaking victims, um, what we do is in the civil litigation world assist with filing and obtaining what's called a domestic violence protective order. Um, It's under General Statute 50B, and that pertains to a victim who is in a specific relationship with their abuser. So say they are married or dating or they live together or they have a child together or parent-child, grandparent-grandchild relationship. An act of domestic violence has to technically occur, and then if they feel like they need a protective order from their abuser, that's kind of where we come in and help them go to court. We have hearings and trials, evidence, the whole nine yards, and then hopefully can get them a protective order. So the domestic violence that we see for those is obviously physical assault, um, threats of, of bodily injury or physical assault, sexual assault, and then continued harassment. Um, so it's a really broad range of cases that we see. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. There's also something called a 50C, which is when you don't have that special relationship with your abuser, and it's maybe a neighbor or a coworker or a like classmate, um, and those are filed for stalking or non-consensual sexual conduct. A study which came out in 2015 from the Crime Victims Unit at Sam Houston State University found that college students are twice as likely to be stalked as the general public, but are less likely to report stalking to the police. Stalking can include cyber stalking, which is often a very common problem among college students and on college campuses. Nationally, 7.5 million people are stalked every year, and approximately 1 in 6 women and 1 in 17 men have experienced stalking at some point in their lifetime. So, we see a lot of both of those. Um, I see a lot of 50 C's for like stalking and non-consensual sexual conduct come from the university up here. Um, so a lot of university students, that's more kind of what we see from there. And then a lot of more local people, um, a lot of 50 B's for actual domestic violence. So they're always complex. Sometimes they involve kids and we do custody and sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes our clients are on drugs. There's a lot of mental health issues. So there's a lot of fun obstacles to try to kind of get around to make sure you're serving your client, but legally, that's kind of the basis of what I do. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, an act of domestic violence occurs every 15 seconds in the United States, with four women losing their lives daily. Unfortunately, it is impossible to know globally how many women, men, and children are affected by domestic violence daily, as domestic violence is vastly underreported. In the United States alone, we know it's every day. There's typically 20,000 calls made to domestic violence hotlines, and it is incredibly disturbing to know that those are only the people who are reporting 
A world without domestic violence would mean that in one week, 487,500,000 women would not be subjected to domestic violence, and the children of 380,250,000 women would not see their mothers abused. When I first started, they had just changed the statute to allow this to also protect same-sex couples. And that was like a new thing, like two years ago. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it's a little far behind. But so a lot of our judges are old white guys up in the mountains. And they that's something that we struggle with is making sure that our clients, you know, whatever they identify as, whatever they want to be referred to is being recognized and respected by the court and that the court because our courts are just a little conservative and a little a little backwards mm-hmm. so a lot of that is trying to um get judges to not be judgmental mm-hmm. <laughs> and just kind of make them realize that this does cover same-sex couples as well um and that that is now part of the statute so that's been a little bit of an uphill battle it's kind of fizzled out now but initially it was like you know, we had judges saying, well, no, this is same sex. The, the, the statute doesn't cover this. And so that was definitely yeah. an obstacle that I think is working on being overcome. The number of gay or bisexual men who will experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime is two in five. And the percentage of lesbian women who will experience domestic violence in their lifetimes is 50%. Now, this is not necessarily intimate partner violence, but general domestic violence. You know, obviously, victims of domestic violence can be anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we see a lot of, I mean, 90, I say 90, 95% of my clients are women. Um, So that's the majority of my cases, if not almost all. I very rarely see a male victim. Um. But that being said, a lot of times in cases, it kind of comes out that perhaps the abuser had been abused as a child and has this kind of like very kind of cyclical history of abusive patterns. So that's something, you know, that's a little sympathetic, but it's it's something that is, is very common as well. But yes, the majority of the people that we see who report and, and file these complaints um, are women and the majority, I think at this point, all of the clients I've had from App State University have been women as well. One in four women and one in seven men will be victims of severe violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Domestic violence knows no discrimination. It can happen to anyone regardless of age, race, gender, but unfortunately, black women experience intimate partner violence at rates 35% higher than white women. To put this in some perspective, I found a particularly disturbing statistic. The number of American troops killed in Afghanistan and Iraq between 2001 and 2012 was 6,488. The number of American women who were murdered by current or ex-male partners during that time was 11,766. That is nearly double the amount of casualties lost during war. And this is just for American women. Domestic violence knows no race, no gender, no discrimination. It can happen to anyone and unfortunately happens to men, women, and children worldwide.
In your experience as an attorney, what are some of the greatest misconceptions about domestic violence and abuse? So there have been a lot of things that have been really hard for me to see happen. Um, In addition to our judges being older and white and and male and majority Republican, as are our attorneys. Um, So if I have an attorney on the other side of a case, I am constantly hearing slut shaming from professional attorneys about my client. Um, You know, and, and it's, and it's, so that's something that we have to kind of shut down really quick, but it's something that is super prominent. Um, it's a lot of, you know, your client, you know, we have a client who maybe had just has a child with somebody. They're not even together. She has a separate relationship and gets called a slut for just being in another relationship during like the proceeding of a case or on I don't even know why, but, but it gets brought up all the time. Um, So, I mean, so I'll give you an example, just really redacted. I had a case a couple months ago um, against an awful attorney, and it was really bad harassment from a relationship, um, some threats of, like, distributing revenge porn, and, Mm -hmm. and things that were shot between my client and the abuser, and the other attorney came to court and started slut shaming her to me and essentially called her slut and then also brought a dictionary with the term slut like tabbed and he was yeah so so slut shaming is a huge thing if they get any sort of whiff of like oh your client has another relationship with another human being you know that's um for some reason that makes our clients sluts um but it's a common tactic we hear for them to attack that and i i usually will like warn my clients i'm like you know if we're gonna have a trial you know they're like what should i expect and i'm like listen expect it to get really really bad they're gonna you know it's gonna be they're gonna be very disrespectful they're probably gonna throw out some names like insinuate that you're promiscuous i mean it's ridiculous so That's a huge thing I see. Another thing I see as it pertains to, like, female victims is any victim, you know, if a defense attorney, so the, the, the attorneys that are defending the abusers get a, any sort of whiff that, like, our clients, the victims, are taking any sort of medication or have any diagnosed mental illness. So, I mean, anxiety, depression. We see, like, our clients get called crazy a lot just because maybe they're taking an antidepressant or they have bipolar and they're medicated or, Mm -hmm. you know, they just have anxiety. I mean, um, so that's been a huge issue as well is just the constant referring to, you know, women with even the most minor mental health issues as just crazy people, you know, and she's just, you know, she's not stable and, and kind of those sorts of types of remarks. That's something that I see a ton unfortunately. A study which came out in 2016 in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that one in six Americans take some kind of psychiatric drug. Overall, 16.7 percent of 242 million U.S. adults reported filing one or more prescriptions for psychiatric drugs in 2013. So if out of that amount of people, 16.7%, that's a high percentage. It doesn't, it's not uncommon. So that's something we also have to kind of overcome in court. And 
I think, you know, as the attorneys kind of age out and new attorneys come in, it's getting better, but we still have this huge pool of older male attorneys who really just don't understand the proper dialogue around what, what what's going on and um, and definitely have no knowledge as to any of like the science behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll give you another example. It's really bad. I had a case about a year ago with a 13-year-old girl who was um, raped by her stepfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a forensic interview done at um, a hospital and it was determined that her hymen had not been perforated. Mm-hmm. So the defense attorney comes to court saying, you know, it's impossible that she was raped because of this medical finding. Um, and I had like a medical expert there to say, you know, that's not, that's kind of a misunderstanding medically. That's, you know, just a misconception of what's going on and that's not accurate. And I've got someone here to explain to you how that's still possible. And it was, even the judge was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to hear this case. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of biases and, um, discrimination coming from a lot of male attorneys. I'm not going to go too into the specifics of intact hymens, but uh, there are so many myths surrounding the hymen itself. The biggest myth is the presence or absence of a hymenal tissue can be used to determine if a girl or woman has ever had sexual intercourse, but in fact, changes to the hymenal tissue's anatomy are not indicative of having had intercourse. Actually, the hymen is a membrane with relatively few blood vessels that, even if it's torn, may not bleed significantly, but forced penetration and lack of lubrication may cause lacerations to the vaginal wall, which can actually uh, be responsible for the, quote, blood-stained bedsheets that uh, so many people in history have used to determine if a couple has had sex, especially in cultures where this is still happening and still being practiced today to see whether people have had sex to carry on their status in a community. Blood is typically looked at as a sign that someone has had sex, when in fact that's not even always the case and that doesn't happen to everyone. Doctors and professionals around the world have tried for years to ask clinicians tasked with performing forensic sexual assault examinations to avoid descriptions such as, quote, intact hymen, end quote, or, quote, broken hymen, end quote. Actually, studies have shown that physical evidence of penetration is generally lacking in most reported cases of initial consensual or non-consensual sexual intercourse And for uh, prepubescent women, at the beginning of their sexual life, the hymen may stretch, which allows uh, penetration without injury. Only a small portion of these women will exhibit changes in the hymen. For example, in one small study of 36 pregnant adolescent girls, medical staff were only able to make definitive findings of penetration in two cases based on the, quote, intact hymen. A study of sexual assault survivors found that only 19% of victims between the ages of 14 and 19 years old had been identified as having acute hymenal tears. Another study 
which involved a greater range of ages of women alleging sexual assault, found that only 9.1% had hymenal perforation. A group of doctors from around the world got together and published an article titled The Little Tissue That Couldn't, Dispelling Myths About the Hymen's Role in Determining Sexual History and Assault. They looked at the common myths around hymens and they reviewed hundreds and thousands of medical evaluations over the past six years and they found that in forensic medical evaluations it was common to characterize the hymen as quote broken old and torn intact virginal or dirty end quote these misrepresentations are not unique to individuals from the medical sector and they have been documented among members in law enforcement in sexual assault investigations, lawyers, magistrates, judges, and this is not okay. For a woman's internal biology to be described as broken or dirty or anything that is a negative connotation is completely irresponsible and completely appalling. The misconceptions and misunderstanding around hymen perforation really show that women's health has not been valued and studied for so many years. Unfortunately, in many patriarchal cultures, the sexual history of girls and women is used as a determination of societal, community, family, and individual status. There are many countries around the world which are still conducting virginity testing, which involves the use of a vaginal examination to evaluate whether or not the woman's hymen is intact. And although this virginity testing has been condemned by human rights and international health organizations, it is still practiced in many countries around the globe. The virginity testing exam itself can be painful and psychologically distressing to the women subjected to it, and also, it's medically invalid. A hymen does not represent a means of influencing the way that women and girls are viewed and treated in society. It's important to raise awareness of this issue and promote fact-based discussions about limiting hymenal examinations, especially in the cases of sexual assault and rape. There's a lot of, there's a lot of biases and... Um, discrimination coming from a lot of male attorneys, um, mm -hmm. both towards our clients and towards, like, you know, myself as a young female attorney. So I imagine it's really difficult to go day in and day out to deal with these cases and face these harsh realities of the world and domestic violence, but what brings you hope and keeps you going? It's a good question. Um... You know, I went to law school at UNC, and I worked summers in the Triangle, so I wasn't really um, familiar with, like, it's it's just much much more progressive there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's taken a lot of kind of transitioning to realize, and a lot of, like, shocking moments to realize how behind, I think, it still up, is up here in the mountains. Um, I think we're just, like politically so far behind and I think the only thing that really kind of makes us a more progressive area is probably upstate 
So it's been kind of a, a process of, of realizing that these things do exist and that they're so blatant. Um, what gives me hope, though, is that almost every time I have a case, even if my client's like, what, the, what is this going to be like? How bad is this going to be? They're, you know, and I'm like, I, I let them know. They're like, I still want to go forward. I still want to, I want to take the stand. I want to kind of say my side of the story. I want to, you know, let people know what happened to me. And I think just the process of filing a complaint and getting up on the stand and testifying is so empowering. Um, and watching my clients do that and kind of look at the defendant or like glare at him or, you know, sometimes they can't. Sometimes I'm like, you just look at me the whole time and there's a lot of tears and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the process of watching them kind of stand up for themselves and for a lot of my victims, it's, this has been going on for a really long time and they're finally kind of putting down their foot. So it's a lot of kind of helping remind victims that they're being very courageous, um, empowering them because it's a huge step that they have taken in for a lot of people, it's like the sixth or seventh time they've tried to do it. I think on average, that's how many times it takes to really leave. Um, so it's just watching them kind of be able to get up there and, and take that step and be empowered and get the protection and knowing that, um, they have that protection is, is awesome. And I think that, I think it is changing. I think, you know, every attorney that I deal with, there's only so many up here. Um, so I've had cases with most of them and, they kind of have come to, I'm the youngest attorney up here by far, one of the few female attorneys. And I think they've kind of come to like understand that I'm not going to allow this sort of like disrespectful talk, even like in chambers behind my client's back or in front of my client when we're having a hearing. Okay, can we just stop for a second and talk about how badass Rachel is? She is amazing and I am in awe of her and all other people who dedicate their life to this work. Okay, now back to it. That is one thing I've been working on is trying to create a little more education as to like the the things that defense attorneys and judges find to be weird and like weaknesses in the case because there's usually a very good scientific sort of psychological reason as to why a victim has processed something in a certain way. Um, or it's just a lack of resources. So I think building community network um, and just kind of letting victims know that we exist um, and watching the victims that I have helped go through hearings and get orders and like that look of relief and just like getting hugged after, it's mm-hmm. the only thing that keeps me going. So yeah. it's it's really heavy material, but it's really rewarding. But yeah, I mean, legally, technically, you know, for civil, for criminal cases, if you're a defendant and you get charged, you get a, if you're indigent and you don't qualify, you get a free attorney. Well, for civil cases, that doesn't exist. Um, So the only option for these victims is either getting legal aid assist completely for free. Um, I mean, there's no costs or fees associated with anything I do. And that's another favorite part of my job is that when people are like, how much am I going to have to pay you? I'm like, nothing, (laughs) literally nothing. Um, It's awesome. It's great. The economic impact of domestic violence is profound. Victims of intimate partner violence lose a total of 8 million days of paid work each year. And the cost of intimate partner violence exceeds $8.3 billion per year. 
Between 21 to 60% of victims of intimate partner violence lose their jobs due to reasons stemming from abuse. And between 2003 and 2008, 142 women were murdered in their workplace by their abuser. You know, at the end of the day, my boss will say, well, it's just a piece of paper, but if it's a piece of paper that makes someone feel safer or mm-hmm. does, you know, I believe it actually does prevent abusers from, you know, abusing more, then that's, you know, that's good enough for me. And it's it's tough some days, but some days are really great. You know, there's some really great wins and I really enjoy it. And it's kind of become like my little, my little thing. And does that it's, exist in every state in America? Yeah. So more or less some form okay. of legal aid. Um, I mean, yes, it is. And we've worked with agencies and legal aid out of state. You know, if we've got a client who really needs to be filing something in Pennsylvania, we can contact Pennsylvania and kind of get them in touch. Um, and these orders, these domestic violence orders can also be registered in any state. So we also help with kind of sending them out and getting them registered if our clients move out of state. It's, it's definitely something to be aware exists. We do usually, it's not the same entity, Um, or organization, but there usually is some form of a legal aid organization in every state. So what's happening now with COVID-19? We're working on setting up in some counties um, WebEx, so I will very likely in a couple weeks be having hearings over WebEx at my house um, with a judge and the clerk of court and the victim and the defendant all involved. Um, I don't know if that's actually going to work. It's kind of been a mess trying to figure out what to do because... Like I said, a lot of the cases, courts kind of shut down, for the most part, are shut down. A lot of cases that aren't emergency cases, they're just automatically putting them out months. Um, Well, of course, this is one exception just because it high safety regards and usually emergency situations. So so the process of actually getting one of these orders is is you go and you, without the defendant there, you get to go by yourself and just let a judge know what happened and they give you like a 10-day temporary order. And then usually that's when we connect with clients and we go back for a hearing and then they get a one-year order. So they're having, they're conti- they're going to continue to have those temporary hearings um, for the temporary orders just so something's in effect. But once you continue it, that actually remains in effect. So the hearings, if they can be, will likely be continued. Um, but the, the temporary orders for emergency relief, those are still going to be going on because it's just an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Um, our concern is more so with people being stuck in homes and low access to courts and DV agencies is that victims, current victims who don't have protective orders are, you know, stuck in homes with abusers mm-hmm. um, and children. So that's our concern is more so the people who didn't have the time to bring a case yet or maybe who have just recently suffered some acts of domestic violence or sexual assault um, is that those people are now in situations where if they don't feel like they can leave their house or they've been quarantined, um, you know, that's, that's a huge safety concern. As coronavirus spreads across the world, unfortunately, domestic violence rates have gone up. While general violent crime rates have actually decreased in recent weeks, domestic violence rates have skyrocketed. In Seattle, police got 614 domestic violence calls in the first two weeks of March. That's a 22% increase from a year earlier. 
People losing their jobs and having kids at home due to school closures can be triggers for domestic violence. Yeah, is, is there like something that, I mean, there's nothing you can really do, right? Unless someone comes forward, it's just like... So, yeah. You know, so as attorneys, you know, the tough thing is we're not allowed to solicit any sort of clients, even if we work for legal aid. So even if I see, like, a victim in a courtroom and I want to reach out to them, I can't. Um, sometimes I'll mm-hmm. go, like, whisper to the judge, like, will you please announce that I'm here and I can talk to anybody. Um, and then most of the time our DV agencies actually go to court with us. They've got, like, an advocate there, and they reach, they're allowed to reach out to victims in the courtroom. Um, so that happens a lot, but our, but, you know, we've sent out kind of flyers at this point because a lot of the DV agencies are working remotely. We've sent out flyers to all the clerks of court where these victims would be going to file a complaint to start a case. Um, so they should be provided with our information. I got a couple new cases in Boone yesterday, so it's working. They're just going to be continued once those temporary orders are put into effect. Um, so we hope that the victims that still do, you know, come forward and come to the courthouse that they can access us and be able to use us as a resource. But of course the concern is for victims who aren't leaving the home, um, or can't leave the home, you know, that's, that's where it's tough for us to be able to kind of meet mm-hmm. those needs without soliciting any sort of, and without even knowing, you know, that they really exist. I mean, so my thinking is, and that's this is what everybody's kind of expecting, is once this all kind of fizzles away and the courts open full time, we're going to see a huge influx of domestic violence, sexual assault cases that have been, you know, kind of over the past three months, once we get to that point, um, that haven't been able to be processed. So we're kind of preparing resources to have people ready when everything kind of slows down um, to be ready for that influx of, of cases. It's something I think about every day, but there's not a whole lot, unfortunately, we can we can do about it. You know, anybody who who comes as a client during this time period, you know, we'll help them as best we can. But my guess is we'll see a lot of clients come in after this all mm-hmm. ends. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, even if you know, even if that's when it happens, you know, I don't, I don't, won't ever hold a victim, um, you know in trouble for not filing something right away that to me there's so many different reasons and obviously now with this hopefully the judges are a little more lenient on okay you didn't file it right away well yeah you were quarantined (laughs) yeah so there's just so many weird things and issues that are going to come up um but but technically if you are a victim and you go to the courthouse and you want to file like in the next few months even if things close down for a temporary ex parte order you can do that. So that, that option's open. They're, my guess is that they will keep, if they even close everything else down, they're going to keep that going. That's just, just as a matter of public safety, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Of thank you so much, Rachel. It's been so nice to talk. and difficult as this episode is to hear and it is so incredibly overwhelming to face the facts of the epidemic of domestic violence. I want everyone listening to this to take away that 
there is help out there if you or a loved one are suffering from domestic violence. Domestic violence is stigmatized and silenced and it is people like Rachel who we can look to who are true superheroes in our world who take action every day to help. If you know someone struggling, don't be afraid to reach out and share this podcast, share this episode if you feel so inclined. If you or a loved one are experiencing domestic violence, there is help available. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 for English speakers and 1-800-787-3224 for Spanish speakers. Many of the statistics today came from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. You can find them online at www.ncadv.org. The Womanhood Podcast was created and produced by Mimi Healy with editing by Drew Mayberry and original sound design by Matthew Peary.